Ephesians chapter 1 verse 12 says, So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask you now to impart your words of hope upon our hearts and souls. Lord, there is so much in the world to dash our hopes. That is why we must look beyond the physical realm to the kingdom of heaven. Lord, where hope is not only secured, but fulfilled. Help us, Lord, today to hope only in the name of Jesus. There is no other place to get hope from. So why would we try? Let us instead rather go to the throne of hope, where we will find our Savior. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning to you, church. I hope everyone is doing well. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12 today, talking about hope and hope eternal. Paul makes a reference to the Jews being the first to hope in Christ. That's what he means there by first, which means you and I, unless you are of Jewish blood or stock, uh, did not come to him first. We are in those Gentile groups that received the gospel afterward, not too far afterward, as we see in Acts chapter 10 and other places, but shortly afterward. You were often the first to hope sometimes in your family. Maybe someone was the first and they hoped in Christ and you saw that hope. But now we must be a first to hope amongst our peers. The way the world is getting and the way <clears throat> society is going, it seems like there isn't hope. And I see a lot of people demeaning hope and saying that what is there to hope in and things are so bad. And yes, things are bad. I'm not going to sugarcoat it or lie to you. Things are bad. But they've been bad before. My hope is not in what this world will do, what my government will do, or what even I will do. Because I've, I know what I'm capable of doing. The mistakes I could make. The errors I could fall into. My hope is one place. The Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message today. And if I started praying a closing prayer right now, that would be enough. But I'm me and I can't stop talking. So we go on. Unlike Jesus, I can't get it done in 16 minutes like he did on the Sermon on the Mount. Webster's Dictionary defines hope is to cherish a desire with anticipation, to want something to happen or to be true. So when we look at, at Ephesians and we declare ourselves to be Christ followers who hope in Christ, we're saying that we cherish him with a desire. We anticipate him. We want him to happen in our lives. We who believe, we amongst all of the world should be the ones cherishing Christ, anticipating Christ. We want Christ to happen in our lives and the lives of others. We desire the truth of Christ above anything and everything else. There is no other authority. There is no other place I can go to to receive help. No one else is going to give me the right counsel. The only counsel I'll get from a man or a woman that's any good is when they point me to Jesus Christ. Whatever they offer to me is in the spirit of Jesus Christ. Whatever they hope to give me lines up with the revealed word of God as given by Jesus Christ, and that's why it's good for me. Go to Psalm 147, please. Verse 11. We are the ones as the church who should not just be anticipating Christ because anticipation can even have a selfish element. I so want to be raptured. I so want to get out of here. I so want to go to heaven. I'm tired of being here and all this hurt and pain. 
Notice I never mentioned God or Jesus' name and all that dumb statements. So you can't just anticipate Christ. You have to cherish him. Hope is not just, yep, I know God's going to take care of me. Hope is God's going to take care of himself. God's going to make sure his glory is, is taken up to heaven. And guess what? I'm one of those glorifiers he's taken up. Hope is not what I will do. It is what God has already done and will do for me. Psalm 147, verse 11. Now, there's a whole other sermon in here with the name of the Lord, but I'll just touch on it briefly. Hopefully your Bible has, but the Lord, the, the word Lord there in all capital letters. Does everyone have that? If you don't have an all capital Lord there, please see me afterward for a better Bible translation. <laughs> the reason that's in all caps is that is the uh, holy name as revealed by God, the pronunciation we typically hear is it's pronounced Yahweh. Now, if you've studied this name at all, you know that when uh, Abraham and Moses and all these men ask God, especially Moses, who are you? Who should I say is sending me? That when God replies, and I'm speaking in generalities now, I'm not coming from a particular Old Testament verse. When God replies Yahweh, when he says his name, he literally uses consonants that Im imply breathing in, and breathing out. Every breath you take declares the name Lord. Now there's a whole other sermon there. If you guys are willing to stay till 2 p.m. today, I could do it. But I go on. But the Lord, so this is the Lord we're talking about, and no one else is given this title. There's other words for gods in the Old Testament, Hebrew, Elohim, referring to judges sometimes or other things. But only Yahweh is given that title of Lord. But the Lord takes pleasure. Now, this is important because we want God to be happy, right? All the husbands in here, you want your wives to be happy, right? You want your mother-in-laws to be happy, right? I'm going to see mine tonight, so I'm, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> the Lord takes pleasure. We all want to take pleasure in something or be proud of something. Look what Yahweh takes pleasure in, in those who fear him. Now, English does a terrible job representing this word. Because our word for fear means, I'm scared. And there is a component here of being afraid. You should not be willing to stand before God Almighty and go, hey, what's up, pops? No one in the Old Testament ever did that. Even Moses, hidden in the cleft of the rock to see God's back tail shirt, and his face was lighting up. Nobody stood before God and was like, what's up, old man? No one. You should never be able to stand before God and not fear a, li a little bit. And it's a good thing to be afraid. See, that's not an American idea, but it is a, a Jewish one. It's a good thing to be a little bit afraid of God. Because what that does is lead to respect and teaches you about his love for you. Because when instead of harsh judgment for you comes down, instead loving mercy comes down. But let's go a little deeper on this because this English word fear doesn't represent this Hebrew word. It's defined as fear, be afraid, fear to do a thing, and then in, in complexity, to stand in awe of. To honor with reverence. It's used in other places to describe a relationship with parents, the people in Moses, the people in Joshua, oaths, commandments, sanctuaries, and elsewhere of God. So when we stand before God and give him the 
reverent fear he deserves, he takes pleasure in that. He takes pleasure when we fear him, when we stand in awe of him. You know why I love that phrase, stand in awe? Because we're not talking. We're not telling God our ideas and thoughts and opinions about things. Humanity is best when we are speechless before God. That's sometimes our best worship. When we're just so gobsmacked by how awesome God is, I can't even come up with anything to say. Do you honor God today? Or does your honor end at 12? Does your hope finish when service is over? Because the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His steadfast love. We hope in a love that remains steadfast no matter the circumstances or issues you're facing. God takes pleasure in our hope. We make, and I wrote this myself, we make the creator of the universe and everything smile when we only hope in his love. You want God to smile upon you? You want God to be proud of you the way you wanted your parents to be proud of you? Then hope in his love. Stand in awe before his presence. And recognize, recognize that my most humble place before God is spiritually on my knees. The next part in Ephesians talks about the uh, hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So go to the book of Lamentations. Yes, it is pronounced lamentations, not lamentations. That's a uh, southern pronunciation and not southern Jerusalem. <laughs> Lama, there, are, there is only one A there <laughs> in the beginning of the word. <laughs> lamentations, chapter 3, verse 17. While you're turning there, the commentator says that the book of Lamentations is made up of five poems, each an expression of grief over the fall of Jerusalem. Like a eulogy at a funeral, these laments are intended to mourn a loss, in this case, the loss of a nation. I hear a lot of talk today about our nation and, and people are afraid of what's happening and how bad things are getting. Well, we're not even close to the issues that most likely the prophet Jeremiah is looking at. He's the one they think wrote this. He's looking, he's on a hill, and he's looking at the burning, destroyed, besieged city of Jerusalem. The Babylonians have just destroyed the temple. It's literally like they killed God in front of the Jews. That's what it was like to see the temple destroyed. Look what he says in verse 17 of chapter 3. He has actually watched his nation crumble. He's actually watched enemies come and physically rape and kill and destroy. Look what he says in verse 17. My soul is bereft of peace. That's an old English word for I don't have any. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say in verse 18, my endurance has perished. So has my hope. From the Lord. This prophet, this man of God has reached a place where, Lord, I am looking for hope in you and I don't see any. I can't find any. 
And unlike us North Americans, Jeremiah wasn't protected by two large moats called the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. We whine about people jumping our southern fence. Their city was gone. Their people dragged away and imprisoned. And Jeremiah says, God, where are you? There's a famous quote about the Holocaust. The Nazis had strung up a little kid for stealing bread. He's starving to death in Auschwitz, and they strung him up and hung him. And one of the Jews, looking at this, broke down and just cried out, where, where God, where are you? And another Jew next to him, and I'm paraphrasing the quote, but he pointed at the boy hanging and he said, they're trying to put him up there. They're trying to put him up there. That's what Jeremiah was feeling. My hope is dashed. My peace is gone. What can I do? Verse 19, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and it is bowed down within me. Jeremiah is in the midst of depression. He is at the depths of despair. The commentator goes on. He says the latter half of chapter 3 implies that the purpose behind the book's graphic depictions of sorrow and suffering was to produce hope in the God whose compassions are new every morning and whose faithfulness is great to even a people who have been condemned for their own unfaithfulness. It was not the Babylonians sent to take Israel. God sent the Babylonians because the people of Israel would not turn from their idols. And Jeremiah knows this. And oh boy, if the Bible stopped there, how much trouble you and I would be in. But we go on to verse 21. We go on to verse 21 and 22. But this I call to mind. So Jeremiah has studied. Where does he go for hope? He reaches into his mind and pulls out the words of God. And therefore I have hope. What does he hope in? Verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Even now, even destroyed, even blown up and, and, and gone, I still have hope. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Yes, things are bad. Yes, the diagnosis was bad. Yes, the government is doing insanity. But folks, you're Christians. I know you're living verse 17, but you got verse 22. So don't stay in verse 17. Jeremiah didn't. Don't stay there, bereft of peace. Don't stay in the midst of despair. Go on. Verse 23, they are new every morning. Oh man, there's so many good quotes right now. <laughs> they are new every morning. I know that the night is dark and you feel like you won't see the sunrise. I know. I've had those nights wrestling with God like Jacob did. I've had those nights when only when the sun breaks and some light comes out does it feel like God has finally answered the cry of my heart. These mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This declaration of mercy and love and faithfulness is being made while Jeremiah is looking at the destroyed city of Jerusalem. It'd be like coming to church this morning 
and I'm standing out front looking at the sanctuary burnt down to the ground. We should be able to say, Lord, great is your faithfulness. The Lord, all caps again, is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. This is the dividing line. This is the separation from those who are bereft of peace and those who recognize the faithfulness of God. Is God your portion? Is God what your meal is going to be? Is God the person you're going to draw strength from? Because far too often, even in God's church, we draw strength from every other place instead of the Almighty. We should not fuel our hopes in anything but God. Not the world's wisdom, nor even, and I might offend you with this next statement, nor even our own opinions. All our thoughts, concerns, and ideas should be directed instead by the text of God's word. God is my portion, not my own self. And where has God revealed the portion? Where has God shown us what is for us? Give us this day my daily bread. In his word. That's why it's such an old Bible-thumping cliche when we say, hey, you got to read your Bible. But guys, it actually works. I know it's a cliche, but sometimes they're true. You actually have to read your Bible. and, and, And if I could challenge you, you have to read the whole thing. I know you start out in Genesis with your Bible reading plan, January 1st, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to read the whole thing this year. I got it. And then you hit numbers, and you're like, oh, my gosh. It was really fun until we got to this. Why is this even in here? Right? And then you make it through, and you get to Deuteronomy, and you're like, okay, cool, yeah, I can do that. Then you get to Joshua, and he's killing people with swords, and it's awesome. You're like, yeah. You read Judges, and you're like, stupid Israelites, I'd never do that. Then you get to Ruth, and you're like, oh, cool, a woman. Awesome. Yeah, fun. <laughs> then you get to second, first and second Samuel. You're like, yeah, more battles and stuff. Then you get to Kings and Chronicles, and it starts repeating a little bit. And by second Chronicles, most people, they give up. You want me to do the show of hands? <laughs> Who made it through second Chronicles? You got to read it because there's something in there. In every verse, in every place, in every moment is a portion for you. And a lot of it has been fulfilled. The book of Lamentations historically is about the destruction of Jerusalem in 537 B.C.? I think so. 86, 586. But it has a meaning for you. And what does that mean? I look at my own life's destruction. I look at the smoke of the, own, of the fires in my life burning it down. And I can still call to mind and have hope. Great is the faithfulness of God. And I do encourage you, if you have not read through the entire Bible, I have a Bible reading program that generates Bible reading plans. I can punch in how, how long you want to do it. And it'll generate for you a Bible reading plan. And if you get with me after, not right after church because I don't have my computer, but sometime this week, I will generate a Bible reading plan for you. That's pretty cool. Huh? You didn't think you were going to hear that this morning. <laughs> I really will. I'm reading the New Testament in 90 days right now. I just finished John. Um, started it almost a month ago. And 
I just, I just was like, I'm going to read it in 90 days. That sounds fun. And I just generated a plan and do it. And I have a lot of fun. I mix it up. Sometimes I read minor prophets. I generate a plan just to read those. They're not minor because they're less than, just smaller things. <laughs> it's a lot of fun, but there's something in there for you. There's a portion in there for you. Remember a, a month or two ago, I think I gave a recipe during the service. I had more feedback on that recipe than the sermon that day. People were texting me, what was that recipe again? Honey and pineapple juice? What, what are you eating? Guys, well, this is the recipe for today. I will get you a Bible reading plan perfectly tailored to your life. Say, Josh, I, I just want to do the whole Bible in a year. Make it real easy. I got that. It's important. It's important because the portion of God you're not going to find outside of God's Word. You're not going to find it in your opinion. You're not going to find it in your friends. You're not going to find it in family. You're not going to find it in even me. You would not like it very much if the pastor teacher was making statements and judgments about your life without using God's Word, would you? If I went to one of you and said, hey, I don't, uh, I don't think you're coming to church enough. I guess I should look up so no one thinks I'm looking at them, right? <laughs> Let me look this way. I don't, I don't think you're coming to church enough. And then you would go, based on what? What would you, why, how are you judging me that way? And if I just went, well, you know, <laughs> it's what I think. You're going to feel one of two things, either incredibly sad or incredibly mad, <laughs> depending on who you are. <laughs> what you would not feel was encouraged, edified, or loved. But if I went to you and I said, hey, my, my brother, my sister, I see this thing in your life, and I open the word to you and I say, here it is right here. This is what I'm reading. And I want to help you. Even if your pride was welling up and going, oh, I can't believe you're getting on to me. I can't believe. Even if it was, that word of God, that living and active portion of God is going to be much better than any thought or opinion I come up with. Now I kind of have this Grinch smile on my face because the reverse is also true. Pastor, I think this. You know what the worst part about that is? Somebody else just told me the opposite thing. I think we should do it this way. And sometimes I'm caught in the middle of like, they're both good ideas. <laughs> I want to make everybody happy. I don't want anybody mad. Uh, they're both really great ideas, but we can't do both. So which one do we pick? It's a struggle sometimes. It really is. Not because people are complaining or being mad. They have good ideas and thoughts. We just can't do them all. And I want to. I so want to do them all. But we got to be led by the word. We got to be led by the word. Do you ever wonder why God never puts a time frame for church attendance within a week in the New Testament? Think about it. There's only one place for, new, for church attendance. Where is it? Hebrews 10. Yep. Do not neglect to meet together. Then you can go to Acts where they met house to house in chapter 2. Which, by the way, was every day, Acts says. But there is no verse in the Bible that says, Christians, go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Can you imagine if there was? Because I'd come knocking, hey, you weren't at church Wednesday night. What's, what's going on? <laughs> There's not. There's not a reference to how long a service should be. Now, of all the things for God to forget to put in his Bible, I can't believe he wouldn't tell us how long I'm supposed to do church. 
which means I can either go 10 minutes or 10 hours. Judy said 10 hours. I was going to say two, but uh, she wants to stay. <laughs> you, you see what I'm getting at? I'm being a little silly this morning, but just to illustrate the point that I would never come to you, and I thank God that I don't have to, and say to you, oh, you didn't make service Sunday, huh? In fact, all I would ever have to do is if I thought genuinely someone was being neglectful, and not because I want to get on to them. I want to love them. I want them back with us in fellowship. That's what James says. Let it, let restore the brother or sister. I'm being a little silly this morning, but I, I just I feel so genuine about this. What does God's word tell us instead of all those other things that we always get worked up about and concerned about? I think I've heard more discussion in my time in ministry about whether to have Sunday night service or not than anything else ever. Maybe summer camps is the next thing. Like, do them, don't do them. Oh, you know, it's, 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 wow. What does God's word actually tell us? What is the portion God has provided to us? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, I haven't perfected those two things. I'm working on it. I don't have time to worry about the other stuff, and I know you don't either. God has told us what we're supposed to do. He's given us the portion, love me, love those around you, and you will do well. Man, I think God's so awesome because he put it so simply, so succinctly. I can't memorize a lot, but I can remember that. God, I love you, and I I love my neighbor. And I don't do it perfectly. I fail all the time. But my desire is to love you and love those. That's God's portion. So church, don't, don't feel bad today. Don't beat yourself up about, oh, I miss church or I, have, I haven't been going in a while. Or any of this stuff, don't do it. In fact, I, I've started to tell people in the front and, and, and leaders here, don't tell people, hey, where have you been? When instead we can just say, it's so great to see you. I'm so glad you're here today. Can you imagine if God treated you that way? If you hadn't, if you've been struggling, you hadn't prayed in a couple days, and finally when you fall on your knees, what you get from the Spirit is, well, where have you been? No, God's mercies are renewed, and he's going to say, I'm so glad you're here. That's the God of the scripture. That's the God of the Bible. But, and it is a harsh thing, this is only reserved for his children. So I caution you today, if you're trusting in a hope other than Jesus Christ, your brother in the church, you're not a child of God. You have hoped in some something else, something that's not going to help you. And you live out your life under a throne of judgment. And that judgment will be swift and terrible. Go to the Lord Jesus, lest you fall under it. And repent and believe and be saved in him. No one is exempt from this standard. No one in the church is exempt from God being our portion. So let us only hope in his words for our lives. I have no hope whatsoever in the thoughts of men. I only hope in the Word of God. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. 
the last part of the verse in Ephesians says that it might be to the praise of his glory. Hope is not only a food of the soul. Hope is a fuel source for worship. We would not worship that which we did not believe was worthy to be worshipped. Hebrews 10.23 Let us, and he's talking to the church, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Remember his faithfulness while Jeremiah watched the city burn? He's faithful. What's burning down in your life right now? He is faithful. He promised. He's not wavering, so you don't waver. He promised he would be faithful, so you be faithful. The great prince of preachers, as he's called, Charles Spurgeon, said, Do not look to your hope, but only to Christ, the source of your hope. If you would, jump to Romans chapter 8. And we're going to finish up in this text. I love Romans chapter 8. It's just about my favorite chapter in the scripture. And I am going to read this text and to submit my own self to be consistent and honoring to my own declaration to you moments earlier of God's word only. I'm going to read Romans 8, verse 24 and 25, and I'm not going to expound upon it. I've expounded enough today. This verse has everything you need. and is the portion God has given Joppa for lunch today spiritually. I'm going to read it, and then I'm just going to close in prayer. So, look at this verse with me. Romans 8, verse 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Dear Lord Jesus, my hope is only in you. Lord, I'm so thankful for the liberty you've given us and how we worship. Lord, I love the tradition of 11 o'clock Sunday service. But it's not a command of Scripture. Lord, I love singing, on average, about three hymns. But it's not a requirement. Lord, I love having Wednesday night, midweek service. But I find nowhere in your word I'm commanded to do so. These are liberties and freedoms given to us as your children to worship you and enjoy you. What I am given is this, over and over and over from your word, pick up my cross, deny myself, follow you. Love God, love my neighbor, and be weary, be wary, and be afraid of my pride, the most condemned sin in all of the Bible. Lord, within me is the real enemy. My desire to self-glorify instead of glorifying you, this is the wicked evil one and the one that I fight every day. Some days he gets me. Lord, but I know I will not be overcome. For the mercies are renewed in the morning and I have hope that my Lord Jesus is going to fulfill 
He is faithful. His mercies are renewed. And he is the hope that I have. In this hope, I pray in his name.